Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Hey, I'm Matt Raya, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is number 32. Uh, and our sponsors for today's show are Backtrace and Arden Labs Ultimate Go series of training. Today on the show for hosts, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. Brian Kettleson could not be with us due to a family emergency, but Kelsey Hightower has graciously stood in to uh, take Brian's place today. Yeah, just like your Go runtime, we're going to even upgrade your host. So uh, <laughs> we, have, we have a few bug fixes, a few patches, but I think you, you're going to like what you get. And we also have Carlicia Pinto on the call. Hi, everybody. And our guest for today is, uh, uh, he's, he's been speaking a lot and is also an author. Uh, welcome, Matt Ryer. Hey, thank you. Good to be here. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with uh, kind of who you are and the things you're working on, you want to give us just a little bit of a backstory and then we'll kind of get into some uh, interesting stuff you've been working on? Yeah, sure. Well, so I started programming when I was uh, really little with my dad and we used to like type content out of magazines, you know, little basic programs to make things work. And then we'd play around with it, change variables and see if we could break it and see what, what we could do with it. And I just loved that. I loved the fact that we could build these things and that, that never left me. So I was very, I'm very lucky to do that now as a career. Um, and go is a very interesting choice, I think for me, because I started it when I was going to build something for Google App Engine, and it was either Java or Python, or there was this weird little language, experimental language called Go. And uh, that was a very appealing thing, you know, because of this kind of nature that I have around just wanting to find things out and see what I can do with, with new technologies. And that was before Go 1.0, actually. So I just got into it very early and was kind of building little bits and pieces here and there for App Engine. Uh, and then the language has kind of just taken off, you know, in, in over the last seven years. So it's it's great. And, uh, you know, that that's kind of why I talk about it all the time and, and why I use it. Uh, basically, almost exclusively now, I, I write in Go. It's kind of funny. And I know Kelsey's been in the community for a couple of years and same with Carlicia, like, it's interesting to reminisce on just a couple of years ago, you could have a conversation with other tech people and mention Go and they're like, what's that? You know, <laughs> and now it's so much bigger. It's rare that you run across people who aren't at least familiar with or, or heard of the language. Yeah, absolutely. When did you jump in, Carlicia? So I got started with this whole thing when I went to go for con in 2015. And when I got back, I started doing it on the side and learning and getting involved with the community and going to the Go meetups in San Diego. And Kelsey, you spoke at the first GopherCon. So you were using Go for quite a while before then too. Were you pre-1? Were you pre 
Yeah, I think during the pre-1.0 days, I was uh, at Puppet Lab still where everything was written in Ruby and we were exploring a replacement that had to be cross-platform. You know, we wanted something faster. So C++ is on the table. We were doing Clojure at the time. Uh, and I think Go was a bit too early then, but that's when I kind of did my first kind of project that I've shared with anyone was in, in Golang to replace parts of uh, Puppet in a different language. Actually, I remember, Kelsey, I was at the first GopherCon where you did your talk on Go for sysadmins. That was the time that we decided to build something that we could put into production because, uh, you know, we before that, it felt like this was an experimental language. And you were talking about using this, you know, and sysadmins in my head are they're like the guys that that really keep the lights on, you know. And so that's like serious stuff. That's not just like playing around. And when you were talking about Go, that was kind of something that stood out as something that concreted the fact that we were going to go and do Go in production. So I actually probably owe a bit of something to you for that. And I looked up the presentation just before this, and just a bit of trivia, your last slide in that presentation is titled, It's Go Time. (laughs) Ah, yes, that is a good observation. And you know what, you bring up a good point, because I think the Go community, if you look at most of the popular projects that are in Go, you know, things like Docker, Hacker, Terraform, all these system-oriented tools, uh, console, etcd, you know, databases. And I think that maturity that's required by that community, things need to be stable, not just the language, but the runtime, troubleshooting, debuggability. These are all things that come from kind of that back-end demand or what sysadmins expect out of a mature uh, set of tooling, right? We've, we've been using Perl for like decades and Bash, and those things are pretty stable in terms of API and what you build with them. So. Yeah, I definitely think the sysadmin community had a big impact on Golang and its stability going forward. That's interesting that you point that out, though, Matt. Like the we do, we tend to view sysadmins as kind of like the gatekeepers to production, and you know, ultimately they take ownership. The DevOps kind of role has changed that a bit in recent years. But before you, you had to throw it over the fence, and and the system administration side had to be willing to support it. So. You're right, kind of in having sysadmins stand up and, and say, we're, we're using this and we love it. And it does speak volumes to traditional run environments where you're, you're kind of separated from production, the development team, rather. Yeah, and Go was a systems language in a lot of people's minds for a long time. I mean, I've been building websites in Go for, for a while, but it's not as easy as it is in Rails. At least it's not yet. I'm quite hopeful for uh, Go Buffalo because I think what Mark Bates is doing on Go Buffalo, uh, I think is going to bring some of that kind of Rails-esque stuff for Go to the web. You know, people want to actually get stuff done and Go is awesome for that, but it's it's harder if you, if you want to build, you know, websites and UIs and things like that. All this stuff's now coming into the language. Um, and I and I'm excited to see over the next couple of years what we're going to do there, because actually Ruby was never no one would know Ruby if it weren't for Rails. Go's taken off without its Rails, but we might see a, a much bigger explosion in use of the language. Um, I think once we can make building web very easy and, and enjoyable. You know, I always think about that, right? You you know, you you brought up a good point. Rails did a lot for Ruby. And I would say maybe Docker did the same thing for Golang, 
right? You know, Docker adopted Go really early on. And I think most people, you know, because they attracted a huge open source community of contributors. And, you know, I can even remember when I was at CoreOS and all their stuff is also written in Go. And I think those projects forced a lot of people to look at Go uh, seriously because they wanted to contribute and get their features in. So in some ways, in my mind, I kind of consider like Docker the Rails for Go, even though it wasn't like a front-end app. It was just one of those applications that was so popular, had so many contributors that it introduced so many people uh, to Golang for the very first time. I think it was um, kind of like a perfect storm, though, too, because even when you know I first started getting into Go, Docker hadn't really been released yet, but there were things like Heroku was doing like Doozer and etcd and then uh, console came out so it was really like this perfect storm of like distributed systems like outside of your your major you know googles and facebook's and stuff was starting to kind of grow and a lot of the new tooling that people were finding was written in go because people were i guess looking for something different than you know their typical c plus plus and java they had been building these things in and then docker of course like you said kind of change the way we think about uh, i mean there's a lot of arguments between like containerization and virtualization and, and there's use cases for both but people really saw it as a new way of you know bundling their app into like this reproducible thing to deploy so the container world just took off and docker really made it approachable for people so uh, yeah it's it's weird like is that the final match that it ignited it all it's interesting yeah but the other thing is Docker and all those early projects, they're kind of serious things, I I think. Rails, you can kind of build fun apps and it's, you know, the performance wasn't a primary concern. Productivity was. Performance of the dev team was uh, something that they they cared about being rapid and all this. And it it didn't have a great reputation for stability and for uh, things like performance and stuff. And Projects like Docker and those sorts of projects that we talked about, um, they're, they're sort of grown-up problems that they're solving. They're serious things, I think. So Go got a bit of a head start in that because of projects like Docker. Um, it was already, it was kind of seen as a bit of a serious language from the beginning, rather than something like Ruby, where you can you can almost guess in Ruby and just write long sentences and it works somehow magically. But yeah, I think Go benefited from some of those projects because they just felt grown up and it felt more serious and, you know, stable and like you could use it in production. I, I guess since we're kind of looking back, I think one of the biggest sticking points for Go was the ability to create that single binary. You know, I, I think as we entered the GitHub era where, you know, you build an idea, you throw it on GitHub. But I can remember a lot of things you would try on GitHub, especially if it was written in like, you know, Node.js or Rails. You have to do so much work to get an environment set up if that wasn't your primary language. Download it. Hopefully you don't trash your machine in the process just to try it out. And then Go comes along and all the projects in Go, that was kind of like the tagline. You know, X written in Go, right? One binary and off you go. You can try it, right? You can try it on your Mac. You can try it on on Linux. You can even try it on Windows in most cases. I think that was also a sticking point that really got people you know, setting the new bar. Like if you want to make a project that people can try out fast, it needs to be almost a single download and off it works. 
Yeah, that's that's a fair point too, because everything before you have conflicting Ruby versions or Python versions, or I mean, even in dynamically linked binaries, you can get into dependency issues. So I, I think I'd agree like that, that just having that single binary that you can just, hey, here's the 64-bit Linux version of this, download it and go. So I want to switch gears. I'm I'm actually like stalking Matt on the internet <laughs> right now. And like his GitHub repository is a goldmine. Um, there's these things like bit bars running scripts inside of your Mac OS bar. Gopher ties me. I mean, that's a pretty epic project. I see everyone making their avatar using that thing. And you have all these things like Go Blueprints and Try. What What's the motivation for, for all of these things? These seems like you're scratching the itch and just sharing with everyone. Yeah, I'm a terrible businessman. That's one thing that I've learned. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't really know. Um, I think if you have to do something to solve the problem for yourself, there's just something very nice about the idea that you've just solved that problem for other people as well. And so it is, that's what appeals. BitBar was an interesting experience. That's actually an Objective-C app. And it, it, as you said, it puts the output, the standard output from any, any executable, and it takes each line and puts it into the menu bar on your Mac. So it's a dead simple idea. It was something I needed. I wanted to Bitcoin, and I wanted to see it in my menu bar. So I was going to just build it for that, which is why it's called BitBar, actually. And then I thought, well, if... It, I could just abstract this very slightly and just have a script that's going to go and get the bit bar, the Bitcoin value for me. And I'll put that in there. And then in theory, people could add other little scripts that got different information. And then something happened uh, at the beginning of last year where it, it went to the top of Hacker News and, and suddenly just got inundated with different pull requests for plugins that did all kinds of things. And if you look through the uh, getbitbar.com, there's, you know, there's, there's a wealth of different things in there that, that you can just put into your Mac menu bar. And it's all free because it's, kind of, it, it's actually not that hard to, to write. It's easy to put stuff in the menu bar. The nice thing was the idea of abstracting it and letting people just write scripts to do it. So, man, I got to ask, like, do you keep stats? Like, do you check the star counts on your repository? And the reason why I have this theory that people that do serial repositories, I'm guilty of this too, but do you check the stats? Like, do you look at the star counts? Do you know roughly the number of stars you have on your projects? Be honest. I do know on some of them because uh, that is a way for me to, to kind of gauge interest. You, you also know anyway by the interactions you have in issues or pull requests and things, but knowing, I think, which projects are taking off or getting interest, it, it, I think is, is a nice way to know where you should put your effort. Because, you know, a lot of times with, in startups, we spend a long time building something. I think the main reason startups fail is because no one needs the thing that they're building. So I love the idea of building something little, getting it out there. And then if it gets interest, if people like it, if they use it, if it's useful, then it's worth putting more effort into. Otherwise, it might not be. See, I think I'm a terrible business person from the perspective of I build stuff, I put it out there, and then I forget about it. <laughs> I don't even look. Really, two years later, I'll go to pull up the project and it'll look like there's pull requests, there's issues opened, and I would just want to be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt, you bring up a good point. I think that's 
the perfect use case for the stars. I look at them as like thank yous and true indicators because it seems like most people rarely give out a star unless they really are either using the project or they really appreciate the content that they find there. Like on Twitter, people just like put a heart on everything. Like, hey, I fell down. Heart. It's like, really? Are you in, <laughs> are you are you enjoying my pain or did you really find that like an incredible tweet? But GitHub stars seem to have a little bit more substance to it, especially when you look at who's giving you the star. Yes. I think so too. At least for me, I only start things that I would actually like to find again, even if I don't remember I started. You know, it's like a bookmark for me. That is interesting though, like the way you use the things on the different platforms are different because you're right. Twitter is more like a nod, like I saw this, like I'm listening, I hear you, right? It's not like, oh my God, I love this. Most people just use it as a way to kind of recognize that they're listening to you. But yeah, GitHub stars are kind of different. Those are those are things that you're really interested in. And like, I don't go through and unlike somebody's tweet, but I will unstar a GitHub project. So Matt, tell me about this Gopherize me. I, I've been seeing everyone, or at least a lot of folks in the Go community, with these little Gopher, you know, avatars. I'm like, where where are people getting these things from? And then I discover this thing. And yeah, I admit I spent about 30 minutes trying to get my Gopher just right. It wasn't really complex. Just picked a brown gopher that was bald and threw a Kubernetes shirt on it. And uh, I felt really good about that. So what, what's, this, what's the thing behind that? And are you seeing a lot of people starting to build their own personalized gophers? Yeah, the, gopherized me was uh, a very interesting. Uh, the way it happened was kind of crazy. The same way you, you saw just little these little cartoons appearing. I saw a couple of them. Mark Bates got one. I think Brian got one. Eric got one. You got one, right? Yeah, so... Ashley McNamara did all the artwork for the new GopherCon site. And uh, when she did that, Brian was talking to her and she made him an avatar. And I'm like, I want a cool avatar. So Ashley made one for me. And then, of course, Mark Bates is like, I want one, too. <laughs> and that's kind of what leads into what, what Matt was saying. Hold on. So let's give a good shout out to Ashley because she has been doing a fantastic job with all of this artwork, uh, kind of extension of all the other artwork we saw in the community, but man, she's been so consistent with it. Every time somebody makes a request about some some trait that, that they'd like to see, she's like, I'm on it, I got it. <laughs> but yeah, Matt uh, kind of took the lead and uh, had had some reference code and stuff that it's like, I can, I can turn this into something people can do themselves. Yeah, somebody on Twitter said, you should build a site that just lets people build their own. And Ashley replied and said, I'd love to do that. And I was at a point where I needed to sometimes because I work, I work at Gray Meta and we work on a big project that's a, a long running project. And sometimes you need a break from those big projects and you need a quick win. You need to be able to do something that has a beginning, middle and end. And, you know, you can do it quickly and get it finished because most big projects don't ever finish and finishing stuff feels great. So this was a perfect timing thing. You know, it was just one evening. Uh, I had an evening spare and I thought I, I can quickly, I think, put this together. And so I've never met Ashley, but just over Twitter, I said, let's put some of your artwork into this Google Cloud storage. I'm going to see if I can load it in through, you know, an App Engine app and render it and just see if it works. And then she put the assets in there and, and, uh, we, we then figured out a few little rules, like all the assets should be the same size. And then we'll just rely on the fact that they are 
you know, we'll layer them up in a certain order in order to build up the picture. And it kind of just happened very quickly. It was about five, it was less than five hours of work just to get it, get a version one ready. And this is again, down to, down to my previous point about, you know, we kept it really simple. All you could do on the very first version was you could pick the artwork. It would show you a preview. You could then download it, which would, it would take a while because it then in the background went and got all the assets and blended them together and then delivered the file. And it was actually quite slow. Also, the thumbnails originally were the, the full size images because, you know, generating thumbnails is something you'd want to do to optimize it. But initially it works without doing that. So it was very MVP. It was, you know, very much whatever we have to do, the minimum, the absolute minimum to make it work so that people can play with it. And Ashley actually shared it before, uh, before I was even ready, you know, but it was, it was kind of working. And then it started to get attraction. It's had about 15,000 uh, users. Um, I put a Google Analytics on it straight, you know, from the very first version. So because I was interested if it was going to take off. And suddenly then I started noticing things in App Engine like, okay, we're actually doing a lot of, you know, a lot of these images. Um, there's a lot of storage being used and rendering the thing when you click the download button took a long time, things like that. But because it had that, that kind of buzz around it, it was worth extra effort to then go and improve the little bits and pieces that needed improving. Well, fantastic job. And I, I think there was another important thing that you said in all that, getting those quick wins. I've, I've seen a lot of people, even who don't use Golang as their primary language, use it as their kind of their escape language. When they go home, they just want to build something and get it done and get it shipped. And I think a lot of people, especially that are doing full-time development, dealing with all the bugs, feature requests, never-ending projects, Go seems to be that language that allows you to take an idea and execute something that's usable pretty quickly. Do, do you see yourself doing that quite a bit? Yes. And I used to do it in Rails too. The only difference is now, especially when I build it for App Engine, I know that when I, if I put it there, it, will scale, it is ready to scale. I mean, it really is ready to scale. I'm, I'm confident if, as long as, as long as there's budget for it, if a million people suddenly went and started gopherizing themselves, that wouldn't be a problem, at least, you know, from a scalability point of view, you know, go the, the default HTTP package, you know, the comprehensiveness of that, that is something that I think we sort of take for granted a little bit. We just write a handler, it's easy, and we can just bind it to a path and that's it, we're done. But really, you know, that is a highly concurrent web server going on there. And especially in App Engine, as I've said, you, you get the benefits of all the the hard work that's been done in order to power these massive scale applications at Google, well, you can kind of get to use some of that. So yeah, I think I like the fact that you can be rapid with Go, but also it really is ready to scale if, if a project takes off. I'm, I'm convinced if, if this was a, a Rails app and I just had it on a little server somewhere, uh, I would have seen m many more problems uh, with the traffic it got. It did on the first day get thousands of, of users hitting it straight away, which I didn't expect. Um, and it sort of just wasn't a problem. So challenge accepted. We need a million people to gopherize themselves and to prove it out. <laughs> and, and make sure, Matt, make sure you ping me offline. I think we can, you know, me being at Google, I love this 
like authentic advertisement for Google Cloud right now. This is totally legit. I appreciate it. But we can definitely help you on in terms of credits for the community. Uh, we definitely don't want you to bear too much of the cost uh, for something that really feels community oriented. It kind of speaks in the spirit of GoLang itself, GopherCon. I think this show, all these things we do as a community, um, I've seen it in other projects as well, so I can't say it's unique to Go, but it's really refreshing to see the amount of collaboration between you know you and Ashley who have never met in person, but yet you guys pulled off this particular service just so people can actually build gophers of themselves. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I absolutely love all the grassroots efforts like that. So now is probably a good time to take our first sponsor break, and then we'll, we can kind of jump in and start talking about some other things, other projects you're working on. So our first sponsor for today is Backtrace. Software teams use Backtrace to take the headache and guesswork out of debugging across their environments. Backtrace jumps into action when your Go application fails by capturing detailed application state information, including the complete set of Go routines, channels and their wait durations, and my favorite, scheduler information. Backtrace analyzes this state and archives it in a centralized object store, allowing you to explore interesting patterns across your errors and plug rich error data into your resolution workflows. Backtrace is used by companies like Fastly, which is ChangeLog's bandwidth partner, Limelight Networks, Message Systems, AppNexus, and more. Head to backtrace.io slash gotime to learn more and start your free trial. So we are back. We are talking to Matt Ryer. We were just talking about Gopherize Me before the break. Uh, and kind of the grassroots effort of that. So have you had any other projects that have really kind of taken off that surprised you like that? Uh, no. <laughs> I love that answer. Like, <laughs> I can resist. Just like, short Straight to it. <laughs> um, it's amazing when stuff like that does that, though. It's just a, kind of a, a little thing you think, you don't think much of at the beginning, and then it turns, it just blows up into something much bigger than you expected it to be. And I think it's probably, it's really gratifying. And like, I, I love seeing like, we were joking last week on the show, all the gophers. It was like, I couldn't even look at Twitter anymore. It was, it was nothing but people posting the gopherized versions of themselves. I know. I loved it too. And um, it hasn't stopped. It's, it's actually still growing. Uh, we also changed, uh, you could originally only share it on Twitter. And we added different ways of sharing it and stuff. So I've actually noticed that people outside of the Go community now have started making these little kind of cartoons of themselves and without really the context of the language or the history or anything like that. So that's very exciting to see happen and, and fun. And of course, the, the source code is available on, you can go and look at the source code. And honestly, it's not awesome. It, it sort of needs a rewrite. And my MO usually is I'll hack at something to so that I can sort of understand how to build it. And then I'll do a rewrite of it. Uh, properly and usually i'll tdd the rewrite and you know the first time i write something i sort of learning it's very it's like a discovery process where i'm figuring out how to do it and then the second time i write it i'll actually write it properly knowing all the things i learned from the first time uh, i think some author said that the art of writing is rewriting uh, i think we're you know talking about novels and stuff but it also applies to software the second time you write something it's so much better because of all everything you've learned. Yeah, you've, you've got a better understanding of the domain. So if you, if you spend just even a little time, 15 minutes spiking out a prototype, 
your new approach is going to be completely different based on what you learned. And uh, yeah, I think that's important. Yeah, I agree completely. In fact, I think the, almost the worst time to design a system is at the beginning of a project, because that's when you have the least amount of information about it. I mean, unfortunately, that's when we have to do it. But there's definitely something to be said for jumping in, just getting something done, because you'll, you'll intuitively just understand the domain or whatever it is that you're trying to solve. And then subsequent times will be better. I genuinely do usually write things twice. And it sounds wasteful, I think, to a lot of people. But, you know, the value's there. I'm going to do it on Gopherize Me. If you, if you, I'll, I'll tag the, the repo as well so that people can see the before and after. But, you know, there's bits in there now that can be cleaned away. Uh, there's some things could be a little bit more performant. But we were able to get it out very early. And now, you know, it has its own life. Um, so it's worth the effort to go and improve the bits that, that might need improving. I think That's a very good point. Oh. Go ahead, Carly. <laughs> I think it's a very good point about rewriting. Uh, sometimes we might have such a big attachment to code. And code is not really the point. I mean, at least that's the way I see things now after having been programming for a while. Code is just, uh, you know, something you output in the process of learning the domain and learning what it is that you need to do, as opposed to what you think you need to do when you start a project. So when people want to change things around, change requirements, and if that involves throwing a project away, I'm no longer resistant because the the true valuable artifact that came out of that was the knowledge that you acquired and then you move on to writing something of value as opposed to oh no i wrote this code and i need to hold on to it because you know all the time that i spent writing that code so we must keep it otherwise I'm, we're throwing that time away that's not the point at all i don't think yeah i completely agree and Go, Go does this for us. Go is a minimalistic language. It's a simple language. So you don't tend to invest too much time as long as you are building things, discrete little packets of functionality. You can quickly get something that, that you need, get something that's working. And because you don't invest too heavily, you can, you're happy to kind of throw it away a little bit, which I think is very important. And TDD also helps because, you know, if, you've, if you have good test coverage, you don't mind ripping out chunks. You can be quite bold in what, how you treat the code base because you sort of have this safety net of tests that, you know, you know that it still works as it did before. Whatever promises you've made are still kept. And Go, I think, by the fact that it has this minimalistic and simplistic kind of uh, philosophy around it, I think helps no end there. Yeah, so speaking of improvements, uh, I was going to ask you about Go 1.8. So that release is on the way. What are your thoughts about 1.8? Is there anything in there that you're excited about, you've been waiting for for a long time? What are your thoughts on 1.8? I'm very tempted to say no again <laughs> and just leave it. But um, actually, there is defer. Defer performance is now improved by... Uh, 100%, something like that. It's like half as efficient, something. Um, and this is, defer is a bit of a, 
interesting subject for me because I love that you can express the intent in the way you can with defer. So you open something and then you can defer its closing so that you know whichever point at which you exit a function, that thing's going to happen. It's going to get closed. And I've seen people complain about the, the, the performance of defer, you know, because it's, there's a performance cost to it. Uh, but I honestly think we're obsessed with that kind of performance versus the productivity gains you get by just being able to glance at code that uses defers and understand implicitly what it's doing rather than being verbose and, and say, closing a connection at every exit point or something like that. And also then it helps when you're collaborating, when someone new comes to the project and they're working on your code, they don't have to even think about closing that connection because you've already deferred it. You know, um, So I'm a big advocate for using defer because of the readability benefits you get. Um, I think it's worth any performance. And obviously, if, if you end up spending the time to really tackle a, a piece of code and you improve its performance, then... I can see why you might sacrifice that for the performance gains. But I think we should just assume Defer is going to perform very well and, and use it. Yeah, if you've got Defer like in a function that's called repeatedly in a tight loop in something that needs super low latency, I can see how you could advocate you know, not using Defer in those particular hot spots. But in those cases, benchmarks tell all, right? Like, like you said, kind of assume defer is the best thing to do from the beginning and let benchmarks drive that, okay, in this particular instance, we're spending a lot of time there. Other than that, I think the only thing that I don't like about defer is that people won't necessarily understand it sometimes and you'll see it used inside of a loop. And it, people, it's a common mistake I used to catch in uh, people's code new to go would be they'd have like a for loop that calls a function inside of it. And they'd use defer inside that, not understanding that like, so say you're like accepting connections on a listener in a loop in a function, and they would have like some defer to close that connection or something like that. Like those are basically just building up now uh, through every iteration of the long running loop. But aside from that, I'd love defer. Yeah, I want to know what others like about Go, but my one that I, my two favorite things so far, and I've actually been using them a little bit early in some of my projects, forcing people to build my stuff with the beta of Go is clean shutdown or HTTP kind of being a built-in thing now. I don't have to go and grab a library. And another little subtle thing they did on the TLS package. So on the client side now, you can actually have the client dynamically choose what certificate to present to the server that it's communicating with. And the reason why I think that's important is I'm building a lot of services now in Go that are doing end-to-end TLS, so mutual auth on both sides. And that means the server itself needs to have a way of dynamically loading and presenting certificates. And we have that in 1.7. But now we have that on the client side in 1.8 where you can now actually kind of articulate, hey, these are the five certificates that I need and be able to swap out which one you serve based on what you're calling. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't even catch that one. But yeah, I mean, I'd agree the the graceful shutdown because we almost always have to write that ourselves, right? For a well-behaved HTTP server, we always had to write that. So having that in there um, is great. Is there any link that we can give to people 
so they can read and understand how that works now. Yeah. So Brad's comment and one of the issues, I think we should definitely give out the link. He gave, a, you know, it was actually, you know, from, from his code and his words, it was a pretty small change to do in terms of the work that has been done up to this point to make it happen. So the issue has a great comment on what it does. And also the docs, kind of one of the things that are so great about Golang is the docs have pretty good examples and description on what it does and what it doesn't do. For instance, we don't do clean shutdowns necessarily for WebSockets, for example. Uh, so that came up in the issue. And I think you find that little note in the documentation. But yeah, so I just look at tip of the Golang package documentation. And uh, I just read about the, the particular shutdown function. The function name is shutdown. Yeah, so one of my other favorite features, if you are like a benchmarking and profiling nut, though, is the mutex contention profiling. Like that's something that um, a lot of people who do um, benchmarks and profiling on their Go apps have been interested in a long time. You know, we can look at basically memory usage and we can look at CPU, but knowing how much time is spent on a mutex is actually very, very valuable information. Um, I think the 1.8, if I recall, the 1.8 release doesn't support the read-write mutex, I think just a standard mutex, but it's a good start. I know that GC latency improved too for 1.8. I think it was uh, under 100 microseconds. I'm vaguely remembering. I need to pull up the release notes. But uh, those were things that I think looked interesting. Anybody else see anything that they liked? Oh, well, I think the workaround packaging is pretty interesting. I saw recently that they released kind of a, an implementation of all the feedback and ideas around package management for, from Go. And I think that's kind of big, right? Because in the Go community, there was this long stance that, you know, we don't want to be too opinionated about how that should work, yet new users to the community and even existing users still struggle with versioning. Should we do it the way Node.js does it? Should we do it the way Ruby Gems does it? There's all of these reference package management solutions out there that some people seem to like, some people seem to hate, but it seems like Go really never had an opinion, a firm one or an official one until now. So that's pretty interesting how, how that's coming together and shape up. I wonder what the community feedback will be once it's actually put to use. Yeah, and we actually have Sam Boyer, who's been a big, huge part of that effort. Um, he will be on the show later this month, and we'll be talking to him about that. So that'll be uh, really interesting because you're right, for the longest time, that was kind of really a community issue. Let the community sort that out. And I think Google saw long enough it was a pain point. Yeah, I see Matt here has, you know, another one of his GitHub repositories called Drop. Dependency less dependencies for Go. That's a that's a lot there. What's going on there, Matt? And also what are your thoughts on kind of the where we are with the packaging efforts? Yeah, so Drop was uh I, I would often write little articles and build little packages like there's a try package that is essentially it's a nice pattern that's encoded as a package. And I'm a big believer in sort of not building in dependencies to your project if you can if you can help it. And Drop was an attempt, something that I use. Like you can you can use it like Go Get, but you 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 say Drop, and it basically pulls all the those source files into your code. So you kind of take ownership of that code. It it, it respects the licensing too. Uh, so you get the note in the comments at the top. It gives you the license and the copyright and stuff. But the idea being 
there might be useful little snippets of code that you just want to bring into your project. And really, the best thing to do is just to copy and paste them in. And Drop sort of just formalizes that and makes it easy to do. But I think dependency management and things like that, this is kind of something that we still talk about a lot in, in Go. Because at develop time, you know, is still an issue. You still do have to solve for having those dependencies. But as you said earlier, the fact that all this stuff builds down into one static binary means at least at runtime and deploy time, we don't have that same problem. So um, there's actually been some cool uh, projects also that I think many of us have come across this week. Do you guys want to take a couple minutes to talk about those? Yeah. So actually, now's probably a really good time for a sponsor break, and then we'll we'll jump into those. And I've got like a really cool one that I want to talk about too. So our second sponsor for today is Arden Labs with their Ultimate Go series. Our friends at Arden Labs offer some of the best training classes for Go, web, and data science folks. They've trained over a thousand students from all over the world over the past two years. They offer corporate training in Go, web, and data science taught by Bill Kennedy, Daniel Whitenack, and John Gossett. Bill wrote the Go in Action book, and all three have given talks at conferences and events all over the world. They offer two and three full-day intensive courses that literally take any developer to a whole new level. The classes teach specification, implementation, mechanics, guidelines, and best practices with a lot of personal experience. They also provide a high-energy environment to keep those involved excited and focused throughout the class. Even your most experienced developers will get something out of every class. To learn more, head to ardenlabs.com slash gotime and tell them Eric from Gotime sent you. And we are back. We're talking with Matt Ryer, and we've been talking about uh, Go 1.8 and some of the interesting things coming up and other projects and dependency management. So let's talk about some interesting uh, projects and other news that we've come across. One I particularly am excited about is, have you guys seen the app project? And I wanna, I want, like, I know I'm gonna slaughter the name. It's GitHub.com slash Murloc Swarm slash app, but it's basically like Electron, but written in Go. So basically, you can build like a GUI-based application in uh, Go and HTML and JavaScript, and uh, it runs as a native application. I don't, I don't know, Eric. That that doesn't really sound like fun to me. Um, I'm joking. <laughs> That's just not right. That's pretty cool. Who wants to write GUI apps? <laughs> hey, we need GUI apps. It's really cool. Like for a couple of years ago, I wanted to build some GUI applications and I was having a hard time. Like um, there's Electron and I was trying to use um, the Chrome embedded framework, some Go bindings and stuff like that. And it just, it was going to be more work to um, get a quick win than I was willing to accept. But this uh, this looks really good, and I'd, I'd like to start trying to build some stuff with it. Is, is that a thing right now in the Go community? I see people, I'm kind of torn between this, right? I see people that would love to do every single programming task in Go, whether it's a mobile app on iOS or Android, building a desktop application. And in some ways, you know, I'm wondering if we're, you know, walking around with this Go hammer, treating everything like a nail, or is there really you know, kind of a, some substance to this, right? Is there something about being able to stick to one single language and syntax to solve these problems? Are we, or, or are we pushing it too far? I think that's something that I struggle with back and forth. Like, I think that there's a lot of reasons to have native apps. 
and I love native apps on mobile and things like that. But I guess for some of the use cases where we, we think about the web world, right, we're all used to building applications for the web. And occasionally you want an application locally that is very kind of web-ish, right? And that's probably where I draw the line, just because like usually the utilities that I build locally don't really need native components. I'm not doing anything magical. They're mostly CRUD-based applications and stick to what you know, I guess. Yeah, because you look at it like match projects here, BitBar, right? So to me, this is the the perfect example of kind of like a bridge technology, right? So you do the heavy lifting in Objective-C, right? Using all the nice things that the platform gives to you, but then you kind of make it Go-friendly, right? So the Go-way is like, hey, just spit some output, you know, be as complex as you want in the language of choice, but then you can kind of abstract away those parts that are truly unique to kind of that particular platform and then you can kind of go do your thing in Golang and just have a single contract to worry about. Is that the way you kind of see things, Matt? I, honestly, if I could, I would have written BitBar and Go. But I do know what you mean, and I kind of uh, agree. I think if you love doing something, if you love a language and you love coding in a certain language, then it's not just that it's what you know and therefore you can be more productive. The fact that you love it, I think, makes you more productive. You know, Go for eyes me, for example. You, I'm, I'm prepared to give up an evening to build something because I actually love doing it, and I don't have the same feeling if it's Objective C, uh, nor Swift. <laughs> believe it or not, Swift is almost like the opposite of Go. Go has this obsession with minimalism and keeping things simple, and Swift seems to be. Some of it is kind of just its history you know it needed to have all the same features that the objective c had because that's what it was replacing but it does seem to be quite a greedy language it seems to be any idea anyone has gets into the language i started to learn swift because i wanted to build something in ios and i unfortunately gave up because it just took me too long to learn it so yeah i i look forward to when we can use go in more places but i do get the argument certainly as far as pragmatism goes to you know, use the language that's best for the problem and maybe some kind of sensible and smart abstractions here and there will help and let you keep complicated things where they belong. That, that definitely makes sense. I tried with Objective-C. I really did. <laughs> I, like, I tried the same thing. I tried to build a, uh, an iPhone app and, and I could, but I, I never felt like it clicked. Like I really like got the language. I mean, I didn't spend a lot of time in it, but you said the, the enjoyment of working in the language. You want to get a project done. You either want to work on something that you, you really enjoy the language or you're interested in, you need a reason to learn the language, or you need to be able to have quick rewards. Like you really want the thing that you're trying to build. And because you're using that language, you can throw it together quickly. And I think it's like Rails. Like I loved Rails because it was like, if I had a cool idea for a little app, I could throw it together in a weekend because of how proficient I could be in it. You know, it didn't even have to come down to how much I love Ruby or, or Rails itself. It was just, I want to see this idea come to fruition. And with Rails, I can do it in a weekend. So uh, m maybe that's the motivation for like the desktop app that I know if I want to throw together something for, for my Mac, it would take me forever trying to get Objective-C down enough <laughs> to do what I needed to. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense, you know, when you talk through it that way. I think it's less, I think my language is the best language and the only language. It's more about, and I think Carlicia brought this up earlier, 
syntax isn't the goal, right? Putting words inside of a file and compiling it is not the goal. We, we just really want to build something. And that is just kind of the price of a mission there. So we don't want to have to pay that twice, right? If you've already paid to learn one language and learn it well, and you're highly productive in it, you would like to kind of recoup those costs for other projects. And it kind of sucks that you have to context switch or learn something completely new before you can even start to work on the actual hard problem, which is your idea. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very involved with Go, as everybody can tell. And some people ask me, why do you like Go so much? Uh, what, what's the big deal? And you know, Go has pros and cons. And um, you know, as a matter of personal preference, I was ready to move on to something new and I chose Go and that was it. I love the community. But for me, I'm doing Go exclusively because I don't want to have the context switch. For me, it takes a toll. And that's why, you know, I'm doing Go now and Go is all that I'm doing because I don't want the, the context switching. It, it's costly for some people. Some people can do it, but not everybody. I want it when I'm exploring, but not when I'm trying to get stuff done. You know, it's funny, like my, my wife, um, she studied Spanish in college. So she went to Guadalajara to study. And, um, and I noticed that some of her friends that, you know, primarily speak, you know, Spanish as their primary language, English as their second language. And they also have this fatigue of context switching when they're talking to certain people, right? So, you know, if they are, you know, if their whole day has been around family, I've, I've gone to some gatherings where everyone is speaking Spanish. I'm just sitting there like lost. But, you know, my wife would then just speak Spanish because it was easier for everyone else. No one else had to context switch to participate. And I, I've seen that in, in kids too, where they'll just use whatever language that they use primarily, like maybe at school, they only speak in English. So when they come home, they may not want to context switch. So they, they continue to speak in English. So I think a lot of people have that regardless of programming language or anything else in life. Mm. I think we're, we're kind of creatures of habit, but I've seen it in other places as well, based on the environment. And obviously, English is not my first language. And I wonder if I'm even more sensitive to context switching with programming languages because I also have the context switching with natural language because I speak Port Portuguese as my native language. I speak some Spanish. I studied, but I don't speak. A, I don't have a lot of opportunities to speak it. And obviously, I speak a lot of English to, uh, during my day-to-day -day work and, and a lot of other things. Carlisa, do you think you do that? Do you think you actually, you know, do you catch yourself, you know, preferring one language over the other, maybe because it's easier to express your ideas yeah. in one language or the other? Absolutely. English for me is a lifesaver. It's so much easier for me to express myself in English, even though it's not my native language. If I get mad, it's English. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's English for sure. I don't even care if you don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, I think at the point if you get mad and you curse in a language, that's your native language, probably. Like, that's the language you go to. <laughs> it's weird because when I get mad, I speak Portuguese, but I can't speak Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just sounds like it. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Carlisi, I do appreciate Thank you for, for speaking in English, though, because otherwise I'd struggle for sure. And actually, I noticed this in, in the Go community. I did a conference in Berlin and there'd be a group of people speaking German to each other and just I'd wander over and as you do join a group and quite quickly 
they would somebody would notice and the conversation would just switch to English. It would carry on, but they'd just switch it. Um, and I always appreciate that. I mean, you know, we, I wish, I wish our language education was better in England, in the UK in particular, because we really have no kind of imperative to learn other languages. And that's a shame because I feel like well, we miss out because of that. So I appreciate any time anyone switches to English for us. I wish I knew more languages so that I could participate in conversations and not force everybody to speak English. I, I feel like that's something I probably want to work on over the next couple of years too. at least, you know, be able to kind of hold basic conversations with other languages that are becoming more prevalent. I hate the idea of like people having to switch out of their, their native language to accommodate. Mm, yeah. You feel a bit bad. Always appreciative when they do. All right. So anybody have any other projects that they've come across that are really interesting? I know there's one that I came across that I'm kind of interested with uh, Kelsey being so active in the Kubernetes world to see uh, what his thoughts are. Have you seen the Fission.io, Kelsey? Yes, I've seen Fission.io. Um, I, have, I have lots of opinions. So for those of you that don't know what Fission.io is, it's, uh, it's an attempt to bring kind of the serverless, really the functions as a service paradigm to Kubernetes. So Kubernetes is kind of this application framework that lets you deploy your containers and describe how they interact internally and externally. And Fission says, hey, let's take that framework and give people something like Lambda. So now you change the contract from having to produce a container to writing a bit of code that meets the interface. So when a request or an event comes in, right now I think it's all HTTP, uh, you're given a chance to respond to that event and you know carry on and you'll be called at some point. And when I take a step back, to me what makes the whole serverless or functionalist stuff worth doing is when you have a robust event system, right? So cloud functions in Google, you know, Lambda and AWS, what makes those things powerful is the fact that you can watch an S3 bucket or you can respond to a message queue or on the Google side, you can imagine getting an email in Gmail and being able to process that as an event. To me, that makes functionalists worth doing. But if you were to think of just doing functions in, in place of general purpose programming that we do now, I think languages like Golang really have reduced a lot of the boilerplate. You know, it's like, hey, import a few packages, kind of express your handler, grab a few configuration things, and off you go. So we're, we're really talking about maybe 30, 40 lines of boilerplate, depending on how many flags you have. And then you're right into the programming logic and you get kind of the things that handle the hard situation, like needing to process multiple endpoints or multiple routes. So I'm, I'm kind of on the fence with serverless as just a different way to program. But I am on board with this idea of providing a rich set of events from various sources, email, HTTP, events from the platform itself and giving people an easy way to process it. I think of this as like a cron job on steroids, right? Being able to have that event model is really what makes function-based programming work, in my opinion. I'm with you there on the serverless. I'm still on the fence. How about you, Matt? Do you have any experience with serverless? Well, uh, as I said, I use App Engine quite extensively and the, the kind of projects I work on having this serverless just be able to push code and it's running and it's available that's massive for me and that makes all the difference actually you know 
I would have to be an expert or know an expert or at least somebody that, that could do uh, what, what's needed uh, to, to actually deploy things, to maintain it and all that stuff. So it allows me a freedom to focus on the app rather than having to worry about you know, making sure it's available and, and things. So yeah, it's, it's massive for me. I love it. Um, I'll always do that if I can. Yeah, for those that didn't pick up on that, Matt brought out a really great point. What we call serverless, to me, and maybe I think Matt agrees here, it's not about functions as a service. I think it's about being able to focus on the application. And I think some platform as a service, such as App Engine, maybe even Heroku, fall in this category, removing the need to manage what we traditionally think of as a server as part of the development and deployment process, I think classifies as serverless. That's a really good point. So now I know we're basically kind of running out of time here and I know Kelsey has a hard stop. Did anybody have anything they wanted to mention for Free Software Friday before we kind of wrap things up? I, I do. I'll give a shout out to the CNCF. They're doing a, a good job of extending what the Linux Foundation has done for many years for the Linux project. Uh, I think Linkerd just joined gRPC. They're also housing Kubernetes, FluidD, and, and Prometheus. Yeah, and they do a really good job of taking what they call the cloud-native you know, software stack, the things that give you the ability to produce these app engine-like platforms, giving them a home, giving them you know, kind of some governance and a way to actually make sure that those projects stick around for a very long time. So I want to give a shout out to kind of the people behind the foundation. We tend to talk about the people who write the code, fix the bugs, and those are important. But I think those foundations that foster community and make sure that these projects outlive maybe the initial set of maintainers are super important. So shout out to the CNCF. Yeah, I'd agree. They're doing awesome things and kind of building a collection of things for cloud native. Open tracing is another one that they handle. So uh, Matt, how about you? Did you have anybody you want to kind of just give a shout out to? And this does not have to be a Go project. It can be just, this is kind of our time to recognize people or projects uh, that kind of make our lives better that may not get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, GitHub is, is something that I think is actually awesome. I think we take it for granted a lot, but um, it probably does get the recognition it deserves. So I don't think that applies. I like Visual Studio Code. I've been trying that out recently, although it's, it still seems to be burning my machine down with CPU usage for the GoDoc for some reason at the moment. Uh, so once that's fixed, it will kind of be, I think, well, certainly one of the best editors for Go. And that's all completely free, which is nice. Yeah, people have been really been loving the Visual Studio code for Go recently. And I'll name off two projects. So over the holiday break, I started playing with uh, Software Defined Radio a little bit. And it's uh, still very, very early into that. And I didn't realize just how much goes into that. But two tools that have been really interesting. Um, one is called GQRX. So they sell little $20 um, dongles that are called RTL SDRs. If you're ever interested in it, get one of those and plug up GQRX and look at what like the FM band looks like, like drawn out in a waterfall where in your local area, you can kind of see like which frequencies come in stronger than others and tune to them and listen to the radio. Really cool. Um, and the other one is GNU Radio. I didn't realize just how much you could do with that. Like, and there's a, a GNU radio companion, I think is what it's called. 
that goes along with it. And you kind of assemble a workflow for the radio frequency that go through. So super cool tools. They do a ton. Can I give a shout out to something? I just realized it's timely because it's going to happen next Wednesday. Um, I just realized, it just entered my radar that Gopher Academy has a big marker channel, which is the same as uh, the Go Remote Meetup, the separate channel with the separate uh, events. And next Wednesday, February 8th, there is going to be one. And the title is Your First PR Contributing to an Open Source Go Project. And I always love this, uh, any efforts to, to get people to contribute to open source. So highly encourage people who have um, that intention to participate either live or afterwards will be recorded. Yeah, definitely. If you've never pushed a PR to any open source project, you should attend that. I, th I think it's, a, it's important for people to do and to give back. And yeah. The Go newsletter, the weekly news, and this isn't just because I happen to be at the top of it this week. Um, I love getting that the, the Go uh, weekly newsletter. And you can you know, Google that because anyone that doesn't have it should get it because, you know, that, that is a great way to, to learn about various projects um, and uh, happenings in and around the Go community. And I love it. Yeah, we do too. So I think with that, we are out of time. And I want to thank everybody for being here. Huge thank you to Kelsey for uh, stepping in for Brian. Definitely a huge thank you for Matt for coming on and for Gopherize Me. So now like all my Twitter all the people I follow on Twitter are now cool-looking gophers. <laughs> <laughs> yep. you, you can also, sorry, yeah, just one last thing. This is quite interesting. Found an API basically for this like merchandise website. And you, you basically just link to them and put uh, an image URL as part of the ingoing URL. It's a query parameter. And then you can uh, shop for merchandise that contains that image, you know, so they'll put it on a mug or on a t-shirt or something like that. It's a really cool API. And I just think, you know, we did it for Gopherize Me because, you know, then in theory, people can buy like stickers with their personalized gopher on or whatever. But I love the idea that we just, anywhere that there's an image, we also have this button where you can just get that image on a t-shirt. So I was thinking of all kinds of different crazy places where you might like that but um yeah i don't know if that's interesting oh nice <laughs> i want my own personal gopher sticker <laughs> <laughs> yeah at what point do we start to hate these little gophers <laughs> that's gonna happen at some they're, point isn't it when they take over they're taking over the world well there's already more possible combinations enough for everyone on the planet to have almost like 10 each i think it's insane, the number of actual different combinations of gophers on Gopherize Me. Oh, wow. So huge thank you to all of our listeners and to our sponsors, uh, Backtrace and Arden Labs Ultimate Go Series. Definitely share the show with friends and coworkers who you think might be interested. Uh, you can subscribe by going to gotime.fm. Follow us on Twitter. We are at gotime.fm. And if you want to be on the show or have suggestions for guests on the show, topics, etc., uh, github.com slash gotime.fm slash ping. And with that, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. Special thanks to our sponsors, Backtrace and Arden Labs. I also want to thank Breakmaster Cylinder for the awesome beats, Jonathan Youngblood for his editing skills, and of course, Fastly for the bandwidth.